Welcome to the show. Friends, Greg Kokel here. The show is called Stand to Reason, and I am your host. And I'm glad you've joined me. Thank you. I am back from the north woods of Wisconsin, having spent uh, most of the last month, save for like, well, two travel days, three travel days, no, actually four travel days. I made five round trips to northern Wisconsin this summer, starting in May and finishing in the end of the second of September. But the last month, from almost the whole month of August, I was uh, there banging away at a manuscript, still working on it, but very close to finishing. Um, 70,000 words so far, and that's, uh, that's a pretty good-sized book. The, <laughs> I still have two chapters to go, and I don't have the introductory material that Jay Warner Wallace is going to write. I don't have the acknowledgments and all kinds of other stuff there. So it's probably going to be over 80,000 words. It, just to give you perspective, the story of reality was 60. So I've been working really hard and hope that you will enjoy this. It'll be out middle of next year sometime it's called Street Smarts, Using Questions to Answer Christianity's Toughest Challenges. So that's what I've been doing the last, uh, most of the summer, actually, uh, even when I was up there on vacation. But I'm back now doing the show here in studio and uh, want to give a hat tip or a special welcome or however you want to characterize it to our 171 new strategic partners. Yes, the plan was be one of the 100, but we have 171. So we have 171 new strategic partners that are part of the 100. So you do the math. And we found out when the report came into the staff meeting, everybody is thrilled. I am so glad to have you all on board. And it's not it's not just about the finances. That's important because this is how we keep going. It's because of our community. Your community members, your people who we have been able to serve, and um, my my philosophy from the very beginning, 29 years ago, is we always seek to give before we ever ask to receive. And 70 of our new strategic partners are people that have never, ever given before to stand to reason. And that really just thrills all of us. And But I'm glad for the whole 171 that have formalized uh, kind of their their relationship with us as strategic partners. Thank you so much. So I tip my hat. And for those of you praying for the project, uh, thank you for that, too. Uh, just a little insight. You know, this is kind of under the O-ye of little faith category, and that would be me. My dad used to say, O-ye of little faith, you pray for rain and don't bring an umbrella, right? Okay, well, in my case, I'm praying for our 100, and I'm following every single day. I'm following the numbers as they come in, and some of you might have been following on the website, too. And uh, we were basically tracking um, day-to-day almost perfectly to reach 100 by the end of the month. But, you know, you always want to go above that. But I was thinking, how far above that? And honestly, when I went to the Lord... I only had faith for 125. I mean, I could pray, oh, give us 125, Lord. And I could mean it, and I could feel it, but if I stretch it to 150, I think, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I can believe God for that. I'm just talking about myself. But I can believe God for 125, so I'm praying hard for 125, and I'm then verbally hoping with God to get 150. So that's kind of lame, isn't it? But that's me. And turns out God comes through, through you, with 171. 
new strategic partners, exceedingly, abundantly beyond what I asked or even thought was going to be the case. So anyway, that's pretty cool. A little update here. Reality SoCal is in two and a half weeks. We have almost 1,500 people. And uh, we're on a good course to fill that place up. It holds 2,000. It could sell out. If we do have overflow, we have overflow room. So uh, we can actually carry, I think, about 3,000 total. So uh, Orange County, reality, uh, that would be, let me look at the dates here, September 23rd and 24th. And the topic is going to be deconstruction and deconversion. Okay, seek and you shall find. That is the uh, the theme of this year, and we're going to be hitting those topics that people are getting hit with, young people especially, because this is geared for young people. But we always we always make clear we're not checking IDs at the door. So whoever will may come, but this is geared for the young people. In fact, they've got a special thing going on now. They practice, and we're going to have another practice coming up. I I haven't even seen it. But uh, what I heard today is probably old folk aren't going to like one of the items, but the younger people who were geared for are going to love it. So that's coming up. Washington, we have 839 people already signed up. That's for October. The date's there, October 14 and 15. And uh, the venue only holds 11 or 1,200, so we're going to sell that one out, no question. And then uh, in Minneapolis, on November 11th and 12th, uh, we're pushing 500 already. It's two and a half months away. Okay. So uh, we're just thrilled with the numbers. If you want to sign up, please, especially if you're in Southern Cal, sign up right away. If you sign up late and you are uh, get overflow, okay, that's fine. You'll see everything, but you'll be in an overflow room. All right. So we'd like you to get in there quickly. Go to realityapologetics.com for all of the information. Incidentally, we just actually launched our first outpost, and that was on Labor Day. Now, there's like 30-some, 32, that are probably going to be formally launched this month. They're just right on the verge. But the official launch of the very first one, it was in Santa Ana, and it launched on Labor Day, which was yesterday. And uh, for me... So, uh, although most of you would be listening to this on Wednesday or Thursday or something, but nevertheless. So, we're thrilled for that launch. Robbie Lashew is doing a great job there. If you are interested in the outpost or attending one, you can just go to our website, str.org. There's a drop-down under training. It says outpost. Select that, and then you'll have a a selective item on that page that says find an outpost. You'll get a, a map, and you'll see where the outposts are already popping up around the country and also in Europe. And we have more international ones coming, but um, this is uh, give you a picture of what's happening now. So if you ever want to find an outpost, that's where you can find it. If you want to know who in my community, who in my area, if there is any, are meeting together with standards and stuff in mind, STR Outpost, that's how you can find it, okay? str.org, drop down training, and then go to Outposts, and you'll see... Um, see the information there. Just follow the links, and you'll you'll see that. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. I uh, incidentally, if you'd like to call in, you're welcome to do so. And I don't give this number often enough. Eight five five two four three nine nine seven five. That's eight five five two four three nine nine seven five. That's the number you can dial uh, here in this country and get uh, get Amy Hall, and she'll pass you on to me. 
if you pass her muster, which most people do, because they're nice to her. If you're outside the U.S., 562, well, you got to do the international number thing, which is one, I guess, for U.S., 562-424-8229, 562-424-8229. Now, I heard about something just recently that surprised me a little bit, and um, maybe you have heard of it, too. I- I'd not... I'd not heard about it until just recently it came up, and I was asking some of our staffers here, and some have heard about this too. It's called quiet quitting. Ever heard this phrase before? Quiet quitting. Apparently what quiet quitting is is a trend where employees choose not to go above and beyond at work. Wherever they're employed, they're not going to do any extra. They're going to do the bare minimum. They're only going to do the work that they're paid for and nothing more. Now, when I read that, the two things happened. I, 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 I was confused and I was sad. I was confused and I was sad. I was confused because this makes no sense to me whatsoever. Uh, I was not raised this way. This is not my value system. I, uh, I do not think I'm a workaholic. My, I don't know anybody who considers me to be that. I work a lot. Uh, but I'm glad to rest and take a break. Sometimes I just can't <laughs> because I got deadlines, right? And I got people to serve. And, you know, I got 18, 19 staffers now with families. And this whole thing's got to keep going forward. Not just for them, but for you. All right. So uh, sometimes we're pressed into service uh, more than what you we would like. But I'm glad to kick back and spend time in my shop and go fishing and whatever. So, uh, but I I I believe in work, and I not only believe in work. I believe that when you work, you ought to work well. Now, this is a biblical notion. Uh, first of all, work is not a function of the fall. Work is part of the creation order. God made man and woman to be in partnership to do meaningful activity. Work. The fall created the toil associated with work. It didn't create work. Human beings, by nature, are meant to be productive. And my, my conviction regarding that is, when we live consistently with our natures, we're going to be the most happy. We live consistently the way we were designed to function by God to flourish. And I actually did a commentary on this Years and years ago at KBRT, my flagship station when I started radio back in 1990, I was reflecting on animals and um, on whether animals are happy or not. And it occurred to me that most of them probably are. And the reason is, is that they fulfill their natures. They do what they were designed to do, not out of choice like humans but out of instinct. 
They are programmed. I don't mean in a machine-like way. They're not machines. Uh, they make decisions. Um, I mean, the more sophisticated animals, the more sophisticated their thinking and decision-making process. But in any event, they, they're not machines. But, but they are still driven to do particular things and, and sometimes very, very complicated things. Think of a spider web or a bird nest or uh, migration routes. These are very com complicated things. They're not thinking about this in the sense of making decisions. They are designed to do these things, and in the fulfillment of that design, they are satisfied. Now, it's a speculation, obviously, because I can't get into the mind of an animal, but that's my thought. And it, it, it comports with the way I understand God. I know God made creatures in a very particular way because he's creative. And lots of crazy things you see in the natural world are reflections of his creativity. And God builds capabilities in through instinctual through instinct, and in, in response to that, then all these things kind of move forward. And that's the way things operate. That's the way God designed the universe anyway. So, but I think he, certainly he made human beings with uh, a nature that entailed work, meaningful activity. And uh, even though as a result of the fall, there is toil associated with it. Now, there's a burden associated. The work itself is meant to be done in a meaningful way. And this is why the New Testament says, I think this is connected now, do your work heartily as unto the Lord. Now, my dad wasn't a Christian until about a year before he died. And uh, actually, I just, in the end of July, I passed his death age. So I've now outlived my dad by about a month and a half, but uh, a little more than a month. In any event, he, 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 there were some pretty important things that he impressed upon me that have influenced my life, and this is one of them. When you work, you work, you work, um, I, I don't want to, I, I almost said work hard, and I, I realize I, uh, that may be miscommunicating. It doesn't mean that you always labor intensely, but that you should work in a way that, first of all, produces something valuable and, um, and do it in a way that has integrity in your labor. And so that's like doing it well doesn't mean you have to be a perfectionist in everything, but you, and especially if you're getting paid, you want to make sure that you are giving your employer his or her due. And I, I don't think that means just doing the bare minimum that you're getting paid to do, although that's the way some people apparently think of it. I want the people I have wanted, as I've done business or worked for other people, I've wanted those people I served in that way to feel th that they got a good return on their investment. No, a great return on their investment. 
all right? It's part of my value system, but it's what makes the work satisfying to me. I was in the trades for what, four or five years or six years or something like that. I was a carpenter, a finished carpenter, and uh, both of my brothers were as well. My youngest brother spent his whole life as a contractor, basically. And um, we all hated the phrase, you can't see it from my house, or good enough for government work. Because all those phrases were, were excuses for doing shoddy work. You know, get by, whatever, you know. And we wanted the things that we did uh, to reflect quality, because that was satisfying for us. Did we get paid extra for that? No, we got paid what we got paid, but we produced something of quality. So the satisfaction wasn't just getting a paycheck. The satisfaction was was doing the work well. And so this, to me, is is an ordinary part of the way I approach my employment projects and any projects, frankly, but here speaking specifically of employment. And so when I heard about the quiet quitting, oh, I'm not going to do anything more than I absolutely have to. I'm just going to lay low. And it confused me. Why would anybody want to do that? How could that be satisfying? How could that be satisfying? Um, so that was the first thing. The other thing was that it, it not just confused me, because it was so contrary to the way I see this uh, enterprise work, and contrary to, I think, what the Scripture indicates, that we ought to work well. Um, it also made me sad. It made me sad because it, it, it reflected a decline to some degree of, of civilization. I do not think that humans flourish well when they don't work well. Um, I, 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 I do not think that we were made just to satisfy our own kind of fleshly appetites. Although this is the way the, the so-called good life is characterized, I don't think it's a good life at all. I think people who are caught up in that uh, live shallow lives. And I don't see how they can be satisfying. Now, of course, everybody needs a break. Everybody needs downtime. Everybody needs to kick back, whatever. I wasn't the kind of guy to lay on the beach. It's never my style. If I was going to go to the beach, I was going to go body surfing. <laughs> or I was going to go diving or, or something like that. Then when I was done with an activity that was satisfying, I left. I didn't just lay there with sand in my sandals uh, and veg. Although I think there's a place for that kind of relaxation in people's life, but not full-time. And when you're working for somebody and your attitude is, I'm going to give as little as possible and still get paid, how could that be satisfying? That's sad. It's not good for our communities either. So when I saw that, I just was, I don't know, what's the right word? I was disappointed. But when I think about it, I'm not entirely surprised because this is, a uh, a trajectory of our culture right now. You do you. Whatever you want, you can get it. And uh, I don't know. I drive by on four, the four hundred five, 
the Santa Monica Free, not the Santa Monica Free, the, the San Diego Freeway coming through West LA and uh, into Long Beach to come to the studio. And here, as they go by Century Boulevard, close to where LAX is, all these big posters, and they all are screaming a certain set of values. And they are all completely um, narcissistic. It's not just that they're appealing to your self interest, it's beyond self interest, it's narcissism. And uh, since we don't watch like regular TV, we do watch videos and and, and uh, DVD type things, um, and sometimes things on YouTube. Uh, we don't get overwhelmed with commercials. But if I'm somewhere and their commercials are coming on, I'm shocked by them. I see them in a different light because they're rare to me. And all of a sudden, what? That's appealing to people. This is convincing people to buy a product. It's all narcissistic, and I'm offended by it. I don't want to buy that product for that reason. And so it's the direction our culture is going. It is not a, crest, a, a direction that is informed by a Christian worldview. You probably heard the phrase, the Protestant work ethic. Well, <laughs> see the connection. It's the Christian worldview lived out that um, results in in productive communities. I'm not saying you can't be productive if you're not a Christian. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm saying this is part of the worldview. Being productive before God, to live out the image of God in man, creatively, productively, making a contribution, not just for our own benefit, but also for the benefit of others. Did I just read this last week in Second? Thessalonians, about how Paul is disparaging Christians who are slackers. And he's saying, you ought to work so you can take care of your own needs and be able to take care of others as well, something to that effect. So our interests are not just satisfying ourselves, our interests are meant to be helping others in some fashion. He was talking financially there. So that if we have to give other people money, we've got money to give, where there's genuine need. But I think it, it reflects this broader concept, too, that when we work, we are not just working for ourselves. We are working for a community. We are making a contribution. And I think this is part of what growing up entails. People say, well, kids grow up so soon, so fast nowadays. No, they don't. In fact, they, don't, they grow up slowly. Here's what's going on. They get adult privileges without taking adult responsibility, and they get corrupted. That's what's going on. They are getting adult privileges, but they aren't earning the privileges by executing faithfully adult responsibilities, making a contribution, caring for themselves, helping for other people, being responsible. And consequently, the liberties without the responsibilities ends up corrupting him. And that's what we're seeing. Oh, they grow up so fast. No, they get corrupted fast. And I think this is part of it. Quiet quitting. Weird to me and sad. All right, let's take a break. I'll be back with your calls here and Stand to Reason.
What if I'm wrong? Have you ever asked yourself that question? There are times when we feel confident about our convictions, but there are other times, if we're being honest, when we encounter doubts that leave us wondering if we got it all wrong. This has caused many to deconstruct their faith. If you can't give a why to your faith, you won't be able to give a why not to your doubts. In other words, if you don't have a Christianity anchored in what's true, you will always be at the mercy of your doubts. That's why we're excited to announce this year's Reality Conference. Our theme is Seek and You Will Find. We will equip students to navigate their doubts by seeking answers to their toughest questions. Because when you seek answers, you find truth. It's time to examine the foundations of our faith because a strong faith requires a strong foundation. Join us at one of this year's Reality Student Apologetics Conferences. For more information, visit realityapologetics.com. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking, and we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic, and subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. All right, friends, Greg Kokel here back with you. Characteristically, that would be usually with you Tuesdays from 4 until 6, uh, Los Angeles time. That would be, are we still on date? We are still on PDT. Yeah, that's right. Pacific Daylight. It's like uh, October 31st or something, right around that weekend is when it kicks back, right? I don't like that because you go from daytime to nighttime. All of a sudden, it's like dark. But anyway, that's I kind of wish they'd just stick with one or the other, but not jumping back and forth. My understanding is, Amy's nodding here, my understanding is that as a result of this, people have like heart attacks or strokes or something. They've charted this. I don't know if there's a real connection, but that's what they say. I do know it's annoying. All right. Uh, let's go to our callers and Tom in Albany, New York. Tom, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. Hey, Greg. How are you doing tonight? I'm pretty good. Thanks. Well, I have a question for you uh, about a particular passage in John 20. Right. And uh, it's John 20 and 23. And just to set it up, of course, this is uh, Easter night. And after Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, 
Mm-hmm. He then appears to what, what must be the 10 in the locker room, of course. Right. Judas Iscariot isn't there, and uh, Thomas is missing. Right. So he appears to the 10, and he he breathes on them and asks them, tells them to receive the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And then he follows that with a saying that I think is rather cryptic. He says, uh, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. Mm-hmm. They are forgiven them. If you withhold the sins of any, uh, forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Mm-hmm. And I read that, and I go, wait a second, I thought only God could forgive sins. Um, of course, I, I, I'm I, a good STR acolyte. I, have, <laughs> I applied the, I never read a Bible right. practicum, and I said, you know, and it didn't help me much in this particular instance. No, I agree with you, and in anticipation of your question, um, I read the passage myself, and um Got what same thing you did. It isn't like there's any big insight here. I, although I did not realize this was Sunday, this was the day of the resurrection. But it says so you know, right and there. It's when, funny that you say that because I had read that passage obviously numerous times, and this was the first time I ever noticed that. Yeah, I, and I mean it raises other questions, but in any event, there there you go. And Jesus is appearing. <clears throat> he told his disciples to meet him in the Galilee, but still he appears. He appears to them before they leave, a couple of times, actually, in the road to Emmaus, and then here this evening with the Ten. It's a good observation there. Now, but this verse that you mentioned is cryptic, okay? And um, the key here, though, and I, I don't know how much this is going to help, but the it's the t- verb tenses that are important. Ah. Uh, and in, in my New American Standard, in the, it, well, in the translation, <clears throat> excuse me, and then they have a IE, this is what it means. It clarifies. Here's what NASB says. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. Not will be in virtue of your act of forgiveness, but have been. If we retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, uh, you've been listening for a while, so you know that I mark my Bible, usually with a pencil, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? so I can erase. And there are lots of times when I put question marks in the margin, like, what's up with that? And here is a question mark, verse 23. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I, I'm not entirely sure what's going on here. Th- this seems similar to something that Jesus said in Matthew. In fact, I'm wondering if there's a cross-reference. I want to think like Matthew 16. Yeah, here it is. Yeah, Matthew 16, 19. Let me go there. <clears throat> and here Jesus says, um, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. This is when he speaks to Peter. And whatever you bind on earth shall, shall have been bound in heaven. Oh, there's the same construction. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Hmm. So what we know from both these passages, they're very similar, and Jesus is speaking in both cases. First, he's speaking to Peter, then he's speaking to the the ten disciples, um, and he's he minimally here. He's identifying some actions that they will be taken that will match things that have already taken place. And the implication I get is the disciples are doing it because it already has been done. All right? Right. Got it. 
Okay, now, that doesn't solve all the questions for me. Uh, that's what the verb tenses seem to indicate here in the translation in both of these cases, but it's still, I'm not exactly sure how that works, okay? <clears throat> is this is this something given to the disciples, the ten? Or does that include Thomas? I suspect. Does that include, who's the, Mattathias, the other guy in Acts chapter 2, who replaced Judas? Maybe. Does that include all Christians, or just that apostolic band? I'm not sure. The way I've characteristically understood these kinds of things, and this is a safe bet, we can we can identify when people's sins are forgiven in virtue of the kind of confession they make regarding the forgiveness of sin. The criterion for the forgiveness of sin, we know in Scripture, is trust in Christ. Okay? And, I mean, we could find lots of verses that he who believes is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already and uh, the wrath of God abides in him. That's John chapter 3. You know, and so there's a bunch of verses that kind of help us to know what the criterion actually are for salvation, or criteria, I should, what is, what are the criteria, or what is the criterion? And so, in a, there is a sense when you and I could do the same thing. If we, if, if we um, encounter somebody who is a Christian, that is, they put their trust in their Rescuer, the Savior, we can say, your sins have been forgiven. They're forgiven. Right. But they're only forgiven because they already have been forgiven. They're not forgiven because I say so. So that's just a thought. None of this is definitive. So it could just be, then, tell me if you think this might be correct, uh, that what the Lord is saying here is not that the disciples would be taking the lead in forgiving sins, but they would just simply be be following the Lord's lead after Him having already forgiven yes. those sins. Well, I think that's that is more consistent with the verb tenses here in these passages. And you're reading from uh, which translation? New American Standard. <clears throat> okay, yeah, I got the ESV here where I got the basic <clears throat> present tense. Well, uh, I, could you read the verb tense again in the ESV? It's a, that's a good translation, but uh, it may be that the verb is. Uh, the verb tense is ambiguous there. Right. How and it does says it read? Here, if, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. Oh, if okay. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Okay, so that that's ambiguous. They are. Are, mm-hmm. they, are they forgiven in virtue of having been, or are they forgiven in virtue of just being forgiven? So I would say that that's equivocal at that point. It's right. not entirely clear in that translation, but it seems to be pretty clear here, have been forgiven them. So um, and so, I, what I'm offering is just a way of thinking about it, but I can't give you definitive answer. This is right after a passage where, in verse 22, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's all connected. Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, breathed on them, and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit if you forgive the sins of any. So this, hmm, there does seem to be a kind of connection between receiving the Spirit and the next statement, but right. I don't know what that connection is. Yeah, me either. I've, I've pondered this a bit, and uh, uh, still haven't 
come up with anything. Yeah, and this is prior to Pentecost, because they received the Spirit here in a different way than they seem to have received it on Pentecost, which launched the New Covenant era. So um, I still got this pencil question mark here, and sometimes for me, when I encounter challenging passages like this, I think of a wheel, (laughs) this is just a visual, I think of a wheel with spokes and a hub. The answer is the hub, and I'm out here on on the rim somewhere. And sometimes I can't get to the hub, which in my characterization is the is the the solid sense of the passage. But what I can do is I can move along the axis of one of those spokes and get closer. I can eliminate some options and get a little closer. And so looking closely at these verb tenses seems to get me a little closer. That adds a dimension of understanding, but it doesn't it doesn't allow me what I'd like to be able to do is have enough understanding of a passage to be able to put it in a paraphrase that captures the understanding I think the passage has. And I can't do that with this one because I'm not sure. There's other passages I could do that with, but I can't do it with this one. Here's what he means. He means this, and then I'll put it in a contemporary language to capture the sense. Uh, I call that the paraphrase principle, by the way. But uh, sometimes you can just kind of remove some materials that you can get a little closer to the hub, but, you know, getting all the way in, I don't know. Now, some people who are smarter than I am and have more background in the Greek might be able to do better, but that's the best I can do on that passage right now. Now, by the way, Greg, what brought this to my attention was uh, my my wife informed me that uh, she's aware of uh, our Catholic friends will sometimes use this particular verse to justify the church the oh, yes. tradition of, of confession. Yes. And their argument is, well, how can you you know, be forgiven if you haven't confessed? And that this... Uh, well, you know, it's, what's you curious is that, I, I know this angle, by the way, because I was raised Catholic, and I know this is the kind of verse that is used, but this doesn't talk about... There is no priesthood in the New Testament. That's Old Covenant, not New Covenant. There is no priesthood. So that is an addition, a cultural addition, that is foreign to the New Covenant concept, first of all. Secondly, this isn't talking—this is—someone is, might hitchhike on the language here, but that's taking the language in isolation, because this doesn't seem like Jesus is giving authority to a— inside group of people to do something, which authority then they pass on to other people they bring on their inside group, which eventually is called priests. So, I mean, to to make this application to Roman Catholic priests in confession is to make a huge, giant jump out of this text. And it's actually, I think, to read a meaning into the text that this text does not um, suggest in the slightest. It does suggest something about forgiveness, but notice the verb tense. Verb tenses say they have been forgiven. Now, I guess the priest could say, well, that's right. We are just acknowledging what God has already accomplished. But, but, but in what sense is that true only for Roman Catholic priests in a covenant that has no priesthood? That's the jump. And uh, they have to justify that. I think, uh, in order to make the case that Jesus is referring to the Roman Catholic priesthood and what they call the sacrament of confession. 
I don't think that's the case here, though. Which also, of course, includes the application of works, because once you've made your confession, you then have to say your penance. That, well, that's, that's another problem. Marys, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> right. This is another problem, because the penance... Uh, well, it, it, it calls into question the finished work of Christ, all right? And I know there are probably careful and sophisticated ways of characterizing penance so it doesn't do that, but it sure sounds like that to most Catholics. If you don't do this penance, which is characteristically a series of prayers that you do after you walk out of the confessional, then your forgiveness doesn't apply. First you do the penance, and it may not be prayers, it may be other actions, but they are qualifiers. This is what's going to qualify you for your forgiveness that I am going to give you, um, the priest is essentially saying, um, uh, provisionally, if you do these things. But wait a minute, that's not the way the New Covenant works. Right. Here comes Christ with a big sign saying, no experience necessary. Say it again. I'm sorry. <laughs> I said, and here comes Christ with a big sign saying, no experience necessary. Yeah, that's right. Because yeah. God saves sinners, right? That's right. That's right. You know, you know no prequalification required. That's right. And uh, when you read Hebrews chapter 10, especially, um, you, you get a clear picture of a finished sacrifice that doesn't need to be repeated. And, uh, and, and this is why those who benefit from that fac- sacrifice can actually know that they have eternal life. This is something that is not part of the Roman Catholic um, conversation. They don't know it. And in fact, right. if you say you know you're going to heaven, that's considered arrogant. Why would that be considered arrogant? Because they have an implicit work salvation, and you think you're good enough to get in. You know, and uh, of course, that's not our view. I'm not good enough to get in. Christ is good enough to get me in. And that's precisely what John says in 1 John chapter 5. Those who believe and therefore have the Son, they can know that they have eternal life. <clears throat> and to me, this was a this was a huge thing when I first heard the gospel in clear terms in the early 70s. My brother shared it with me. He was an altar boy. But when he shared with me this aspect, this was totally foreign to me. And incidentally, I do not know, and just a little postscript here and then we'll go to break, but I, don't, I do not know how any <clears throat> message <clears throat> pardon me, of salvation can be considered euangelion, good news, gospel, if there is some question, significant question, about whether anyone is going to go to heaven or not, that particular person. Right. So if the gospel is, when you die, you walk through one of two doors, one is eternal bliss, the other one is everlasting torment, and you don't know which one that is, how is that good news? It's only the confidence that you're going to go through the door that takes you to the presence of the Lord and all the joys and satisfaction that are associated with that intimacy with God that is good news. If you, if, if you could possibly go through the wrong door based on the message, that's not good news. That's right. So there you go. All right. I'm hey. be thankful that we have a no-so salvation and not a hope-so salvation. Yes, agreed. 
Okay. Hey, thank you, Tom, for the call. Thanks a lot, Greg. All right. Bye-bye now. Okay. All right. Let's go to break quickly and then more following that here on Standard Reason. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. You can take Stand to Reason with you through our mobile apps, available for free from the App Store or the Google Play Store. The Quick Reference app gives you short, easily accessible courses on our most popular topics like tactics, homosexuality in the Bible, morality, the story of reality, and many more. The Stand to Reason app has all our latest content available at your fingertips. You can listen to our podcasts, check the blog, and access timely and practical resources. They're free, so download the apps today on the App Store or the Google Play Store and start carrying Stand to Reason with you everywhere you go. If you enjoy our apps, you can help other people find them by rating them on the App Store or the Google Play Store. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I think, actually, I don't know when the broadcast was aired, but I did a special show um, off our regular airtime, and then I just used our open mic callers, which was great. And uh, when people realized, oh, this is how that works, we got a flood of new calls in, and we're thrilled about that. Open mic is when you go to our website, str.org, you go to the broadcast page, and uh, follow the prompts there. But basically, you can push a button and then start talking to your computer and leave your question. And then that ends up in the queue, and uh, when you're gone and I'm here... Uh, you're not waiting in line. You still get a chance to ask your question. And so we play the question, and then I respond to it. Now, there is an advantage of having people like Tom, our last caller, uh, who raise a question, and then we can chit-chat and knock it around. Um, but for those of you who can't wait on hold for sometimes an hour or more, um, this is a great alternative. Not only can you do open mic— on our website, you can also just dial direct, and that number is 857-DIAL-STR, 857-D-I-A-L-S-T-R, or 857-342-5787. Okay, that in mind, uh, let's go to Luke Adams uh, on our open mic. Hey, Greg, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about biblical inerrancy and where the biblical support for that doctrine comes from. It often seems a lot of people argue for it from the perspective of what the consequence would be if it weren't true, rather than showing the evidence for why it is true. Furthermore, if God meant for the text to be inerrant, why would he allow so many things that seem to trip us up in the scriptures, such as ambiguous passages, 
seeming contradictions and conflicting doctrines like Calvinism and Arminianism, for example. Thanks, Greg. Uh, you're welcome, Luke. I'm glad you called with that. And uh, it's interesting, the prior call I had um, was about a passage that, you know, I admitted I, I'm not clear on what its meaning is, all right? So let me speak. There's a couple of issues here that I want to speak to. One was the biblical support for inerrancy. And I, I, the inerrancy, I think, the concept is based on the Scripture's own characterization of itself, all right? Now, this isn't, this isn't, um, I, I, I guess, I'm trying to think about how best to explain this, because I think this may sound circular, but it's not. Because what I'm doing is giving a characterization, not a proof of. All right? <clears throat> the, biblical, the Bible's claim—so that's the question—what is the biblical support for inerrancy is based on the kind of claim the Scripture makes for itself. There are hundreds of times in the Hebrew Scriptures, for example, where, where we see the statement, thus saith the Lord, or some, something like that, all right? And there are many times uh, where the writings are referred to as God's Word, in the New Testament, and when we look at Jesus and his own claims about Scripture, he refers to the Hebrew Scriptures as God's Word, sometimes as Moses' Word, and other times as God's Word. And so in other words, Moses is speaking, for example, that's God speaking. God speaking through Moses. Um, and we see a, a number of different places where Jesus seems to be characterizing all of the Tanakh, all of the writings of the Old Testament as being God-inspired, okay? And then, of course, he has his words, and uh, as God, his words are the Word of God. But the words that are captured as the Word of God are not just Jesus' words like Memorex, if you remember those old tapes, but uh, that were to record everything precisely. Uh, but a, a characterization that the apostles have given, maybe summaries, sometimes exact quotes. But the doctrine of inspiration is that it is the writings themselves, and this is in Second, make that yeah, Second Timothy chapter three. It is the graphe that our God breathed. Okay, and uh, and and so there is a, a a web of passages, interconnected passages, that seem to indicate that the corpus of New Testament Scripture and Old Testament are God's Word. Now, the inerrancy comes from a line of thinking or reasoning based on that. Now, keep in mind, the demonstration that it is what it claims to be is something separate than what I'm talking about. The question is about the biblical support for inerrancy. The Bible claims to be God's Word. If God can't err, pretty much by definition, then His Word can't err. That's the basic logical line. If God can't err, then His Word 
can't err. That's like saying, I mean, it's, it's similar to saying there's a person who is incapable of untruth. And therefore, if he speaks, his speaking is also incapable of untruth. Because it's a reflection of the person's ideas that are incapable of untruth. So it's just a different way of putting it. The reason I put it that way is because we talk about these things, it's the lingo, and so we kind of lose the sense. God's Word means the perfect, omnipotent, omniscient, divine being, creator of the world, has spoken. That guy, he can't make a mistake. So the defense for inerrancy is based on the self-characterization of Scripture. Scripture claims to be God's Word. Whether it is or not is another discussion, but it claims to be, and therefore if it is, then it's going to be inerrant. So people who believe it's God's Word are going to have to accept the notion of inerrancy or else fall into kind of a silliness. Yep, that's God's Word, and He can't make any mistakes, but His words can. Really? That doesn't make much sense. Now, this raises the, the next question. Uh, why would he allow so many things to trip, trip us up in Scripture? Ambiguous passages, apparent contradictions, and unclear doctrines. And I think that that reflects the, the nature of communication. All right? All communication is done within a context. All right? This communication I'm offering right now is being done within a context. First of all, the context is English language. Secondly, it is the, per the person of Greg Kokel who lives in America and Southern California in 2022. All of these things are, are elements that influence the way my words are to be understood. If God were to communicate today to me in this culture, many of the things that that are that he would communicate would be a lot less confusing and ambiguous than they are to us. But guess what? All of those ideas that now are more clear to us now would be a lot less clear to people 2,000 years ago and 2,000 years from now, okay? Because they're in a different cultural context, in linguistic context, and a context, and historical context, and personal context. Everything, all communication, by nature, is done within a particular context. And therefore, when you are further and further away from that context, there is going to be less there's going to be more confusion, uh, more of an opportunity for misunderstanding. And there's no way to avoid that, because it is the nature of communication. This is why our discussion earlier had to do with verb tenses. And some translations maybe don't translate those verb tenses quite as clearly. And so then there's confusion because of the translation. Now, my suspicion is most of the people who read this writing at the in, in the era the period of time it was written in and and they were native speakers of the language it was written in probably had a lot and they were also very aware of the cultural context there probably was a lot less 
ambiguity, apparent contradictions, unclear doctrines then than there are now. But you know what? There's still going to be misunderstanding. Just like me talking now to people who are in totally within my context still could misunderstand. It doesn't mean my 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 words aren't necessarily clear. Sometimes they may not be. But even if I spoke clearly, there can be misunderstanding because words have multiple meanings. And people may misread something I've said. So I don't, uh, in my view here, based on what I've just said, um, the fact that there are ambiguous passages or apparent contradictions or unclear doctrines does not invade against the idea of inerrancy. You have to start somewhere with a spoken word, and then you have to understand it within that context. And the further you away from the context, the easier it is to misunderstand. All right? There you go, Luke. I appreciate the question. I hope that helps a bit. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Thanks for joining us today. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now.